1: Hello, Ramblers, and welcome to another Ramble Meets with me, Andy Brassel. Now, today's episode is a chat with Troy Townsend, who you probably know for one or two things. Uh, his work with Kick It Out, who's been involved with since 2011, or being the dad of Andros Townsend at Crystal Palace, uh, something kept quiet during his earlier career, but now fully embraces. He follows Palace here, there, and everywhere. But there's loads more to Troy than that, as you're going to find out. His personal story from coming out of a tough background and going on to set up youth academies, uh, fighting all types of prejudice in football, and the thing that really shines through his. T- total love of the game I can't wait for you to hear it anyway uh, let me know what you think at Andy Brassel or at Football Ramble and in the meantime this is Ramble Meets Troy Townsend So tell us about your first memories of football as a kid God oh
2: There you're taking me back quite a long way aren't you Oh. would say um, that <laughs> um, everything has to be around two things uh, Tottenham Hotspur yeah. Um, and Brazil, funny enough. all oh, right. Um, I have a love of Brazil. Um, I don't know where it came from. My father's not really... He likes football, but I wouldn't say he loves football in the right. way that... I know that I love the game and, and mm. loved it as a youngster. So, um, I have vague memories, and this will give away my age, um, of the 70 World Cup. Yeah. Um, probably the first time I heard the word name Pele. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just something about them and the kit struck me as, yeah. as as a team that I needed to align myself with. Followed. Lights up a
1: great English yeah, day. Yeah,
2: just yeah. So I, I I remember years later, well, a few years later, I somehow managed to purchase the ten Pele. Oh, right. kit Okay. Shirt, sorry, because I couldn't afford the shorts and the socks, yeah. unfortunately. Um and and the brazil culture the brazilian culture and the, the the style of play has always always stayed with me well i suppose it was
1: so different to to english football culture yeah. then as as well wasn't it i mean you grew up in east london American, east right? london born in hackney right.
2: um spent a few years there which I'm a little bit glazed to be honest but then yeah walthamstow Wolfham forest Chingford.
1: so did you start playing inspired by brazil or did this change the way you played what are your first steps I, in playing football
2: yeah i i think so when i played school environment um sunday side was a little bit difficult because i had to go to church yeah um and if anyone knows my mother um it was church and there was no getting out of it so right. whilst Friends of mine who were playing in the same school side as mine um, were off playing Sunday league football. Mm. I didn't until probably the age of 9, 10. Some some might think 9, 10, that's a good age. But my friends were playing at an early age and Mm. and kind of enjoying what Sunday mornings bring with football. Mm. So my early memories were my, my school side captaining them to uh, a league title oh, nice. um, which was brilliant um, and we wore yellow tops so I don't know if I influenced Spades. that yeah <laughs> I think I did influence it to be honest and said to the to the PE teacher they're winning tops those colors that color is a winning <laughs> top so yeah memories of that memories of playing anyone that knows Wolfram Forest memories of playing down a place called St James's Park yes um, I like to think we're all the best footballers were were born and groomed and and, and eventually made it into the game uh, St. James's Park, there was a place called I Farm, which was right behind it. But yeah, we used to play our games down there. I like to think we played with a lot of freedom. I didn't think there was a lot of structure to football back then. I think mm. it was just, I mean, I nicked the 10 shirt. Um, so, and that stayed with me forever and a day, you know, the number 10. <laughs> um, and I'd like to think I played like a 10 as well. I played yeah. up front, but there was this thing about that shirt, wasn't there, even back then. And it's kind of like the thing that I wanted to be I wanted to be the creator the goal scorer the magician the all of the above and yeah. some of my teammates might say well you're none of the above to be honest <laughs> but um, it was something that that's how I fell in love with football and 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 Pele was kind of systematic towards how I saw football being played as he was the, the most dominating figure out of that Brazilian side but obviously we could talk about many of them so um, is, it, is, go is through.
1: it a big deal that Andros has got the number 10
2: shirt then? <laughs> You know, it was because I, I didn't know, honestly, didn't know that he appreciated the number in the way that I did. Mm. Um And he'd always worn like a nine or 11 and then coming through the ranks at Spurs, mm. you don't really get to pick one of the, the first 11 numbers. For you, sure. Yeah. You take what you're given and that's about it. So, you know, I've seen him in 35, 25, everything but. 17 when he finally made it through at Tottenham and yeah. then as he came to 25 was a number that that stuck with him as well but as he came to Crystal Palace he he'd originally got the 17 and then Yannick went yeah <laughs> so Yannick gets sold and he's just said I want that number um and so obviously there's quite a few fans that had bought the 17 and he changed immediately Yannick went and um reimbursed the fans for their troubles as well oh, that's so great. to see him in that I mean I'm filled with pride anyway but even now I'm kind of yeah it's that's a, a moment yeah, right yeah it's an absolute moment and I'd like to think that he's done it justice um in the way that he plays and the style that he plays but yeah it's a, a real it's yeah it strikes me it does strike me
1: so when you were first playing organized football around um Waltham and Waltham yeah. Forest when when you were a kid. Um, How diverse was the the, the local community and were you aware of how
2: diverse it was? We were massively diverse. My my closest friends, I mean, I'm not sure that thing where people say, oh, we don't see colour. I see colour, but I saw it as as an absolute positive. My friends were from an English background, an Asian background, a Turkish background. They'd come and knock on my door. They'd ask me to come out to play. All that kind of stuff. Wolf and Forest for me has always been diverse, anyway. So when I looked at individuals, or when we were, you know, creating friendships, it it was about the human being. It was about Mm. the person. It was about the, the 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 mainly through the love of football, you know. Yeah. Um. So I didn't see difference at that stage. For me, it was just growing up in an environment where I could play. Anyone that knows me knows that. My school years were just f- full of football. I yeah. didn't really concentrate in the classroom. Um apparently I was quite bright. I have nothing that will tell you that I'm bright apart from people used to say that you were quite bright and mathematics was your thing. Yeah. The only time I used maths was to make sure I had one or two more players on my team in the playground, <laughs> you know. Um but that's what people tell me, but football just consumed my whole kind of thought process. So i've been to schools that were diverse i never looked at anybody any differently mm. yes you have your battles and your challenges but for me i only really truly recognized difference when i was about 15. Um,
1: what happened then was was this when you were playing other teams from different areas or
2: yeah we, we were part of the district side that were playing in the national nationals cup competition okay. and we'd gone up to middlesbrough to play at the old airson park oh yeah Um, I got a lift home from there, a police (laughs) van once All above board All above board, right Um, So we were up in Middlesbrough the night before Um, It's the first time I think I'd ever stayed away And I was sitting, we were just having We were out for a bite to eat that evening And I was sitting with a group of friends And a young boy, I would imagine no more than five years of age
0: Hmm.
2: Came up to the table, well close to the table And literally stared at me He stared at me for what seemed like an eternity. Mm. Um, Probably only a matter of seconds, maybe even just a little bit longer. I looked over, I could see where what I presumed was his his mother was and she strolled over and pulled him away and and that seemed to be the end of the story. But it was more significant for me because I wondered why out of my table of friends that had another three white players and maybe one uh have a black player on there that he chose to just stare in my direction and then I kind of put two and 12 together and made a number and it was because of the color of my skin yeah and he I can only presume that he'd never seen anyone like me or my friend before and just proceeded to stare in the only way that a young child can it was (laughs) I I was I don't know it's quite off-putting you know we didn't really discuss it afterwards, but I I looked at myself and thought it's because he thinks that I'm different to, to my teammates and non-football related was a week later, literally almost a week later as I finally, you know, scrounded up enough money to buy my mum a birthday card. Mm -hmm. Um, I was crossing the road and I, I don't want this, you know, buying your mother a birthday card should be standard Yeah, for a young lad who didn't really have any money and who was, you know, I was, we were struggling as a household, I'm not going to deny it.
0: Mm.
2: I bought my mum a birthday card and I was bouncing home. And as I bounced home, I bounced across a road that I just didn't notice. And the car that nearly knocked me down stopped. The driver got out. First thing he saw was the card, ripped the card up and called me a black so-and-so. Wow. And then I thought, there was no fear in me. It was just after last week, now I really know that I'm different. And it's the first time that someone really labeled anything I could describe as racist towards me. Mm. And it just made me consciously aware of who I was. You know, I was a young man who, as far as I was concerned, saw no difference in anybody and had a group of friends who were just like me. And I suppose it was the first time that I really kind of recognized, you know, within seven days that actually, you know, there are people that do not it will do not recognise the colour of your skin, or will use it as a as a way of, of of attacking you almost. You know, and I think from my experiences from there just led to me realising that no matter who you are and who your group of close friends are, there'll always be someone that will have something to say or negatively say about you as a as a human being.
1: So, do you think growing up in London, you're almost protected from that kind of stuff because I, I grew up in a very diverse area of south london yeah and i think you're right in what you say before it's not that kids don't recognize color small kids don't recognize color. it's just not a big deal yeah it's like in the same way as like you know you're you're wearing a red top today
2: or some well, blue we'd trousers red. Or we'd never wear red. No, <laughs> we wouldn't do that that's too far red, <laughs> but yeah
1: red I'll and blue imagine. at the same time maybe but it's it's something that, for example, I found that in living quite a, I, I, I suppose, um, cosmopolitan existence, until well, c- certainly or quite a mixed existence, mm. it was only when, funnily enough, when I started to go to football, <laughs> that that I noticed that that racism was a, a thing, mm. because if you're surrounded mm. by people who are black. Turkish, Vietnamese. Yeah. Even if you're white, mm. you're right. You you always think when you're a kid, you want to be like everyone else, and you do think about the yeah. things that unite you rather than the exactly. things that make make you different. So, really, for, for me, it was. I, I went to a match between um, Wimbledon and Millwall when I was when I was twelve. I, I I used to go to Wimbledon. I still go to Wimbledon, and um, there were some Millwall fans behind me. And I know Millwall have done some extraordinary strides in the community, and they've tried to erase a lot of bad stuff. But the fact is, there were some Millwall fans behind me um, chanting some really uh, repellent stuff about about John Fashanu. And um, I remember like, saying to my mum, "Like, how can uh, wh- yeah. what, what what happened there?" Mm. And she said, "You know what." You, you can write. Why don't, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you complain about it? And so I wrote to Millwall's chairman at the time, a guy called Reg Burr, and he wrote back to me and he's, he's like, oh, that, that didn't happen. It must have been Wimbledon fans. And um, I was,
2: wow. That, that, I've heard that.
1: And that that really, yeah. as, a, as a 12-year-old, that really profoundly yeah. shocked me because growing up in diverse life, I'd never come across anything like that before.
2: Similar, I've got a similar story. I mean, I again, being a Tottenham supporter, I got into White Hart Lane, um, and I say got in because I'm not quite sure I paid um, <laughs> as if you're in you're in yeah Garth Crooks and Steve Archibald were making their debut yeah for Spurs and it was me and a friend and it was an unbelievable occasion it's the first time that I was watching football at that level live you know this mm. is my team this is you know again who's wearing the 10 it's Glenn Hoddle so although Crooksy and Archibald were the ones I wanted to see Glenn Hoddle was obviously always going to be the standout fixture yeah us, there was no fear going into the ground. No, no, not even a thought process. I think I was, is it seventy eight, seventy nine? So I was thirteen. There was no thought process that two young lads of that age were were and both black were were ever gonna be at a target of any kind of abuse at all. Mm. I was there to go and see my heroes, and I never, never have witnessed anything. All the time I've been at Spurs, apart from away supporters sometimes, and we're talking Italian fans and that. But this is when I'm watching, you know, Andros. Yeah. But I, uh, 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 a person that I'd coached quite a bit, Bobby Barry, was the Mil- captain of Millwall Football Club. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, yeah. and I've gone to watch Millwall versus Everton and um, Bobby's the captain of Millwall Football Club. Mm. I spent a little while at Millwall as a youngster growing up. Um, okay. So I had a kind of a little affinity with the club anyway. Mm. I remember Daniel Amakachi playing yeah. for Everton and uh, ball gone out of play and he's just about to take a throw. When this guy belted down the stairs and hurled the most horrendous abuse at Amakachi Mm. um, about the color of his skin and ran straight back up past me again. And all I could think of was, what does Bobby think about this? You know, he's Mm. racially abusing a a black Everton player as his captain, the leader of his side is black. And all I could think of was, I wonder what Bobby, I think I left not long afterwards because I was, Many people say, well, why didn't you challenge it? I was just outraged and I couldn't believe that I was witnessing stuff like that in a mm. ground. Um, and it's always stayed with me as well. Always stayed with me. Well,
1: th- that's the thing, isn't it? We can talk about like, racism in football and we'll talk about the, the wider picture later down the line. But um, we can talk about it as just a reflection of society. But it's not really, is it? Because the fact is, for a lot of people, the stadium is their... Safe space, isn't Mm, it? mm. Where you know traditionally we talk about how they can forget the worries of the nine to five and all that sort of stuff. But for a lot of people, it's somewhere where they can say whatever they think. Now, you know whether that's telling someone to just just to f off and you know stop time wasting, you know stop running down the clock while their team's losing, or something more sinister. What we're what we're talking about. This is why it's specifically a football thing, isn't it?
2: It is. I think I've said this recently, it's a place of work for mm. the guys on the pitch, anyone on the pitch. It's a place of work. And that should be their protection area as well. You know, I wouldn't come into a place of work as we're sitting here now and, and absolutely abuse you. Yeah, You know, so why does paying your money mean that you actually are now given that voice to, to rant and rave and whatever else? I
1: think there's a right assumed that's not yeah. there. Yeah.
2: And... I don't care what football says, and I mean at the hierarchy level, mm. it does provide that platform for individuals to change immediately mm. as they come into a culture that's quite mobbish, mm. um, that has you know uh, a rivalry aspect to it, no matter what clubs you're playing against, it's still a rivalry because you want your club to win three points rather than the opposition. And for some, it turns them into this crazed human being. For some, I've seen people not watch football matches rather turn their back on on this spectacle and and basically look up and and challenge the very nature of the opposition yeah. to whatever they're gonna challenge. Like you know, the people who just look at the away fans. Yes, yeah. come example. on, yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. I think to myself, we've just scored. What what are you not interested? Yeah. And and so that's not that's just a fuggery thing, you know, but ultimately the the stadia allows that to flourish. And obviously that will flourish in different ways with some people because as far as they're concerned, I've got a great opportunity here to target a few of the the opposition based on the color of their skin.
1: How has your experience of um, racism in the game and in the stadium changed since the eighties? I mean, like I said, for for me, I sort of it was the first time I really became aware of racism, and to me, it was shocking when I. Uh, read Paul Cannaville's book yeah. back in, in, in 2007 because I guess I started following football, at, 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 so I started going to football regularly a couple of years after he was at his peak, so his sort of late 80s. And I, I was reading the book and thinking, did this really happen? Yeah. Like a couple of years before I went. And, you know, but I, I do remember, you know, you go back and you analyse it, it's stuff you don't really get as a kid. And I remember like people like Paul Davis Howard Gale yeah. talking about when like, people would make just, I guess, casually racist jokes. And if they didn't laugh along, they were told they had a chip on the shoulder. That Ex- attitude. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were in the Palace Academy, how much of that was around you? A, no, I was a, oblivious you know, to it.
2: Right. I was. Oh, I've got to be honest, and, it, and it's not. I was oblivious. What, it didn't happen, or were you oblivious. I don't. To it? I don't believe anything happened. Right. If you want me to be honest, I right. was there, totally focused on trying to be a better player, trying to, you know, trying to live my dream. I thought I was mm. living the dream anyway because I didn't know that actually they could get rid of you. So I thought that <laughs> you could just go play, and all of a sudden someone would see me on TV. So. It, it, even at that time that those things didn't cross my mind and mm. and people can say well you're a little bit ignorant if they want to it, because it's happened forever and a day but I can only talk about my experiences and the, experience, the experiences of those around me mm. um, and I grew up in an, an era with in a Sunday side called Beaumont Football Club um, that had Terry, Teddy Sheringham Michael Jilks Perry Sucklin you know mm. good people who were teammates of mine um, Jimmy Carter who I don't think I don't believe we experienced anything as a group of players. Right. Um, and as we all drifted off into, into the academy environment, definitely know what we never spoke about. Vince Hilaire, who, you know, used to come back down to the club and all Vince spoke about was the positives. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fact that he's come from this little old Sunday club from East London and is now a professional footballer at Crystal Palace. And it was something for all of us to look up to. You know, someone who we could go... The vision was we wanted to be like Vince. He, he didn't tell us the stories that I now know of some of the times that he was travelling away and, and some of the abuse that he received. Mm. And actually, why would he impart that on a group of young players who actually want to live the dream, not be put off by the dream? You know, so like you said, you kind of reflect later on down the, down the line and go back to a period of time when you now start to know that things were really tough. Yeah. Um and really tough, obviously, for people that look like me, as that we try to make it up, you know, make it into the game as the first generation off. So all of a sudden my heroes started to be, you know, your Cyril Regis's, your Laurie Cunningham's, your your Brendan Batson's, your Clyde Best's. So I knew yeah. all these people. And then as you, you educate yourself a little bit, don't you? And then all of a sudden you realise that to achieve their dream, they had to go through what they had to go through. and And I suppose that, was the kind of stuff that started to empower me more so you've always had that mentorish side to you i
1: i suppose haven't you and you've always wanted to put back in into your community um you've uh been in non-league management you're you're with Rid- ridgeway rovers and then you then you got on and and, and set up your before. academy
2: there were tough times before then andy tell me I, I, you know you're I'm smiling at some of the stuff that you've I'm pleased you've done your research, but I'm smiling at some of the stuff that you say because they were the good times. Right. They were the times of um, giving back to the game. But before I gave back to the game, I struggled with my own well-being because... Because you didn't make it as a because player? Because I didn't make it. I That's all I was ever good at. I don't think I took my exams or even went back to know what mm. my poor results were because I knew they were poor because I wasn't dedicated to that. I was dedicated to football. And then someone, a couple of people made a decision that shocked me. You know, you're not Mm. good enough. And you're not prepared for it at that age, I suppose. I wasn't prepared and I struggled. I had no parental support Mm. uh, and I don't, at the time it didn't bother me. You know, I was was free. I was a young man with a bag who was going to play football. Pair of boots, that's it. Mm. I didn't realise the impact and the influence of your parents or those that love you, how they can help you through this journey. And, and... I don't hold it against my parents, but I wish they were there now. Hmm. So when you get bad news, who did I tell the bad news to? Absolutely no one. Um, I had My older brother, absolutely not. I just, just didn't go to training the next day because I wasn't allowed. Um, and that had a massive detrimental impact on, on me as a person because football right. was now being taken away from me. So now I had to search for football. Your friends know that you're, almost good enough and they expect you to be good enough to make it
0: Mm.
2: then when they hear on the grapevine because it definitely wasn't from me i don't think troy is there anymore now you're going back from and i'm going to say this particularly in my time my era you had hero status Mm. you know you were planning academy environment you were Deemed to be the best in your school, in your, one of the best in your area. Yeah. So when that's no more, that's a massive struggle. Did
1: your friends and peers know how to approach that with you?
2: No, because I didn't want them to. I didn't want to be around them. I didn't want to share what I thought was bad news because mm. everyone knew that Troy wasn't in the classroom half the time. Mm. Everyone knew that when it was in the playground, there'd be one dominant player in that playground, and if he lost, he'd be absolutely peed off. By the way, <laughs> so. I didn't want to share the negative stuff with anybody. And I i got to admit, I think I had more than enough years of finding, finding other people to almost, uh, what's the, to understand Troy Townsend in a different right. way. So I went with, I had a friend who, again, talented footballer was never going to make it because he smoked and drink mm. was never going to, but boy, what a talent he was. Mm. But he got himself into no good. That was all his life was about. And actually I thought to myself, is that the next best thing to being revered in football was to be amongst a group of people who are actually on the the road to ruin probably in their life as young people. And that's what I did. I became a follower. I captained my school side. I captained my, 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 my school sides all the way through. I was a prominent player throughout my district years. But I wanted to feel that kind of... L- almost love in a different way so it's not just about the enjoyment of playing football it's about the status but i've lost the status yeah so all of a sudden now i start to hang around with people doing the wrong things in the wrong places at the wrong times you know
1: so how do you get from that point to that point where you do start to become a sort of community cornerstone
2: because i got threatened right i got threatened and and in being threatened someone was going to disfigure my face right and I'm not no hero um I think that turned my life around you know I was on the road to to uh, I keep saying when I talk that actually I'm quite fortunate to be standing in front of you Mm. because if that person decided I'm not going to listen to a word that you're saying I'm just going to do the act I'm not sure I'd be sitting here in front of you Andy so Mm. I kind of realized that if I don't buck up if I don't get myself back on track. And there's only me that was doing this. Mm. I I don't know where I would have ended up to be totally honest. So the only thing I was ever good at was football. The only thing that I ever loved was football. So I had to spin it round and become that community person that you're talking about um, through trying to coach then through identifying players who are very similar to me, who lack support, lack guidance, lack parental kind of real drive in this game. And then try and provide that through my own academy. Um, first of all through Ridgeway Rovers, my, my eldest son was at Ridgeway and I I often thought I don't want to get involved, but you know, when you see things, you think I've got to, and they asked me (laughs) to coach and I formed my own Academy from there. And players came from all over everywhere. And to be honest with you, the best years of my coaching life was seeing, you know, nine year olds. And then that some of them stayed with me from eight all the way through to 18. Wow. And uh, just watching them flow and, seeing them as friends now some 10 12 years later shows me that what I was doing was right you know and I'd almost wish that I had someone that could have influenced me in that way because they might have been able to, to to put me back on the straight and narrow if they saw me straying I thought I was doing the right things and I thought I was dedicated enough to football that it was going to be an easy decision for somebody but obviously there were a few things missing that I didn't have that guidance and I didn't have that father figure. So I know how important it is.
1: So when you talk about that, that guidance, when you go from coaching to being the father of first Curtis and, uh, and then Andros, how did that affect you both in, in in the way that you looked out for them in a football sense and as, as a parent?
2: You've got to learn lessons, haven't you? You've got to learn lessons from your own experiences. You've also not the pressure side of it. I don't care what anyone tells me, this is a pressurised game. Whether yeah. you're an eight-year-old walking in you know, with the shorts too big and, and all that kind of stuff, or to whether you're a 16-year-old waiting for a decision to see, one, if you're going to go full-time uh, as a scholar, and then when you're waiting for your professional deal. Mm. So um, Curtis was a little bit different. Curtis wasn't living with me. So, uh, you know, he the time... I got Curtis was when he was released. Um, he was mm. released. He had that same experience as me of being released and, and, and struggling. And I wanted to provide as I was non-league manager at Chesson, Chesson at the time, him, that safety net.
1: So was that when he left Wimbledon?
2: Yeah. 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 You know, to, to go back into the game. So I, I only wanted him to spend a short period of time with me. Um, But I wanted him to be around someone that loved him. Someone who who understood him and someone who could possibly help him go back up the ladder sooner rather than later. Um, you know, as a as a seventeen, eighteen year old, there was still very much time on his hands. Um, and obviously, what happened next with Kurt kind of took that away. Um, so, you know, killed in a car crash a few months into his eighteenth birthday. Uh, you know, eighteen years. So, eventually, it, it didn't happen. But it was, and again, as as an individual and as a person, as a human being, it nearly tipped me over the edge. You know, it okay. was the thing that nearly, you know, I think I'd been crushed before, but I'd never been crushed in any way like this. So, you know, your son that's playing for you is now taken away by the game that you love. So all of a sudden I started to resent football um, because... Now the negatives were starting to outweigh the positives, you know, and and it was it was it, it was a tough time.
1: Well, obviously Andros is quite a bit younger. What seven eight years?
2: Andros was ten. Well, he's, yeah. he's seven eight years younger than. Oh Karras? yeah yeah yeah. It's, it's, oh wow yeah yeah.
1: So how did that affect the way you parented Andros through the next bit? Because he was at Spurs already by that point. Was he was at
2: Spurs already? He had an experience where. Um, he was released by Arsenal as a youngster. I think he was eight. Right. Nothing to do with his football ability, but they said he was—he wasn't gonna. He was too small. Right. Um, so he was back in at Spurs. Not lo- he was in at Spurs not long afterwards. I don't think. I think that the, the beforehand. Uh, Affected my experience. So, my experience, you know, meant that I, there wasn't going to be any pressure on him. You know, no, I, I don't care what anyone tells me, you don't know if your son's going to be a professional footballer at 10 years of age. No. But all you can do is, is balance the parenting act in terms of the lack of pressure you put on them. You know, it's my missus that used to take him to training and to games most of the time because I was doing, you know, my academy and, and other stuff yeah. uh, within the non league environment. But I don't think it changed way. I think there was always going to be a non pressure around him playing um, from us as a family. The pressure comes from the game. Um, And when he came back through the door, he was just Andros, the son, the brother, the one the girls used to take the mick out of. You know, he wasn't, you know, sometimes, you know, once he was out on loan, he was coming back in a late and orient tracksuit, or he's coming back and that didn't matter. You know, you come through the door, that's it. You park that, you know, big time footballer stuff there. You come back in the house. And I think that's the way that you have, because football can be far too consuming and yeah. i think that's what i made it at my time far too consuming um and i think you have to have that balance where let's appreciate that the heart they, these young people are human beings as well and when are they allowed to be young and to grow in a, in a sense so the family have to provide that and i think i'm not saying we're perfect but i think we've done it quite well
1: of course a lot of people know you from your work with kick it out so in the second part that's what we're going to talk about
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: So you began to volunteer with Kick It Out in 2011. What inspired you to do that?
2: Um, I'd been to an event in the summer i'm a former teacher so 15 years as a as a teacher and helping young people achieve or 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 you know excel in sport who very much like me academically were struggling um and it didn't matter what sport that was it could have been anything so we created a kind of environment where sport was the tool to success and would also help back in the classroom as well um and i left under very difficult circumstances which I don't think I'll go into now but ultimately it left me struggling with the fact I think I was too comfortable I think I'd created a, a a space for myself where it was easy for me and I don't mean I don't want to be disrespectful about that but in terms of I knew what I was doing I was taking P lessons I was taking children to sports sessions to 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 activities to games to and it was i could do it with my eyes closed it's so like, like any job yeah. isn't it? you you can get two sessions two, yeah, yeah and i was doing it with my eyes closed and i left and i wanted a challenge and i was lucky enough to come across this kick it out event which was at the old um the beckham center the beckham academy right building okay. yeah and they had an event there i remember michael a. Malalo was there and Oh, this this seems quite good mm. um it was about coaching it was about you know progression and I thought ah, this seems quite good and because I was on their database now they had my email address they put out this this email for um uh a volunteer and I don't even want to give away my age but volunteering at my age was a wow can I do that um and it was a three-month post so I thought mm. you know what Let, let's let's do it you know it gets me out of the house it keeps me functioning as such and So I went to volunteer and and the volunteering was just around our resources. So T-shirts, if I fold and have a T-shirt in my life, wow. Um, But it was about There is an art to it. (laughs) There is definitely an art to it. I don't think I had it by the way, but yeah, it was T-shirts. It was we in our old office, we had a loft and that's where all our resources were. So I spent most of my life in a, well, this part of my life in a dark loft. Um, putting together resources for football clubs, uh, uh, poking my head down every so often just to make sure that people realize that I was still in the building. Um, and I suppose what I wanted to do was also impress on people, the person that I was. So during this volunteering period that went from three months to eight months, <laughs> um, I just wanted to impress on people that I was more than just a volunteer. I was more than just someone that was folding t-shirts and putting out resources. Um, I went in as Troy Townsend mm. and they knew nothing else. So they didn't know about Androsu's career was just starting to, to 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 fly a little bit because I didn't want them to judge me as the father of. I wanted to be yeah. judged as Troy Towns in the human being, the person who actually has pretty decent football knowledge as well. Um, I got, I'd like to think that I was quite fortunate because realistically, I went for three months. It was going into its eighth month. You know, you're getting someone for a little bit of expenses and a little bit of lunch money. And I think to myself, how much longer can I do this? Mm. But I was working with, on a mentoring program was working with. Do you remember Earl Barrett?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: so, from Oldham. Yeah, from Oldham, uh, you know, from the good old days, from England, Man City and mm. Stoke and that. And Earl was the mentoring manager and he stood up in Manchester and came down for two days. But I knew Earl, his thing was he wanted to coach. Mm. He wanted to be in an academy environment. And I remember the day that he said to me, I'm leaving. Um, I've got my job and at Stoke City Academy. And whilst I wished him Good luck. I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) this could be it. You know, I think because of the work that I'd put in almost unpaid for eight months, it was, I'd, I'd built up enough credibility and enough, you know, within the organization. Remember it's a charity and, and and the game to be respected enough to, to move into the position that I was helping Earl with. So it was kind of then, right, you're in, you know, and uh, I, 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 uh, listen, I, I, I don't want to be too. I flourished. Hmm. I, I, I find that quite difficult saying it about myself, but I. Flourished. You can say nice things about yourself. It's fine. <laughs> I flourished because one, I knew the game. Two, I'd now been schooled in a, in a lot of the aspects of football off the pitch. Yeah. Most of my career was in and around the pitch. The management side, the coaching side, the playing side, and I felt I had so much to add to this organization. That they wouldn't want to let me go. Hmm. And I, I don't think I've looked back since that, that day of Paul Elliott. It was at the time, it was part of our trustees, um, who said, Troy, it, it's yours, you know. And, and eight years later, well, seven and a half years now, I'm still there. It was a tricky time, though, for
1: Kick It Out around 2011, 2012, because it was the aftermath of the Anton Ferdinand, John Terry thing. Obviously, Rio was steaming mad about the whole thing and you can you can understand that yeah. th- that was his brother but there seemed to me to be a huge misunderstanding at the time of what kick it out actually was it was seen almost as part of the establishment yeah. when rio was going well you know what it's not doing anything so yeah. i'm not going to wear a t-shirt and also you had that with uh, jolly and lescott yeah. because of what happened with joseph yobo and m ray and FA not taking action jason roberts as well yeah so how much of your work in that first part of kick it out was to say actually this is what we are we are not the establishment we're fighting to change things and You know, you're you're picking the wrong enemy
2: here. I think I I personally was just developing a voice then. Right. I remember I'm still new. Our chair, Lord Herman Oosley, at the time, you know, unfortunately he's left us now, but um, was very, not vocal, but would, you know, be around the Ferdinands at the time and support in that way. And that's why we were a little bit unsure with how Rio was approaching this. You know, we Mm. were in the courthouse every single day as well so we were not sure i i remember that time as being i wondered what i'd let myself into um it was a massively difficult time um you know you don't switch on sky sports because all we're doing is reading that we're getting battered everywhere yeah um and i don't think we were prepared for that and i don't think we had a sm- much smaller team than what we have now well
1: it's but- an organization back then with a pretty small budget
2: wasn't it? Budget is ridiculous. I think the budget is still ridiculous. If you want me to be totally honest, yeah. in terms of what we do in our outreach, but yeah, no one really knew what we did, and it wasn't till Sky Sports. I remember Sky Sports putting out kind of like what our funding stream was and and what we were doing for our funding. That a lot of people start to say, "Oh, wow! Is is that all they get? Is that you know? Is mm. that all their 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 workforce?" and that was the day that you could start all of a sudden pick your head up a little bit and go, oh, people are starting to understand now that one, we're not a part of the, 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 the authorities in this game. Mm. So we can't sanction people. And two, we are working on very, very limited resources. And I think that day onwards, we started to puff out our chest a little bit and yeah. go, right, OK, we're, we've come out from the fire. And I never forget Garth Crooks, who obviously was a trustee as well, who came in on a Friday when there was a lot of doom and gloom. And just told us to stop working. Come on, we're going to go for a drink. That might seem like... Oh, that's a regular occurrence on a Friday evening, isn't it? Well, it wasn't for us. It's not. Garth just said, let's forget our troubles. Let's go down and let's enjoy each other. And then we went out for a couple of hours and just had a drink down a local pub. And it was special because... One, because he was concerned enough about us. And two, I think we all kind of then grew in our own company. You know, because... I can't explain enough how difficult that period of time was, and how working for this organisation then become a real weight on our shoulders, rather than the what I tend to think was I joined there for a reason to help to help make change, mm. and it became a real weight. And a few people that you have to thank during that period of time, and Garth definitely was one of them.
1: Uh, there's people still learning about kick it out because it's not just about campaigning against racism, it is the mentorship program, which was the first thing that you really got involved with when you were there on a full-time basis. There's the accessibility to, to football at a grassroots level. It's quite wide-ranging, isn't it?
2: You want to learn if you want to learn. So you want to understand if you want to, If you don't really want to understand what the organization does. You ignore that kind of stuff. Right. So people that are connected with us, people the mentorship program, which is now called Raise Your Game, like you said, is something that I came through, um, has provided opportunity for many you know when I was trying to get into the game if I was given the opportunity or the mentoring by the amount of people that we have mentor for us now I would have been in the game a long long time ago Mm. Um, and a lot of people who work for us you know not work for us sorry the media side of things and coaching if they had what we now provide back in their day maybe their first level entry into the game you know from whatever angle would have been different so but you've got to want to know that. So when yeah. we get criticised now, it's through lack of knowledge, it's through yeah. lack of appreciation and understanding on what we do. And if you don't want to understand it, then you don't, you know, you just close the door on it, don't you? So, yes, there is still that. There are still many that would never understand what we do, but that's because they won't want to take time to understand either. Um, and no matter, I can, you know, I can go out and talk and have a members of staff, but we impact right across the game. From the professional level right down to the grassroots level. And what I call grassroots, not what many call grassroots. Mm. Grassroots for me is the person who's got a bag of balls, has not got a facility, but can put it down in a park and generate you know, young people coming towards them as their yeah. first stages. That's grassroots for me. It's not organised football. It, it, it's getting out there. All the balls might not look the same. You might have not have many cones and actually you haven't got bibs that are the same colour. Yeah. That's grassroots football for me. Um, that's where it starts anyway. So you either want to understand or you don't want to understand. And I think too many times the people that criticize us actually don't want to delve into the fact that I didn't know they did that. I didn't know they did that as well. We stretch ourselves. I'm not going to deny that in terms of, you know, the finance we have and the work output, but I wouldn't want us to lose any of the space that we're in because I think it's vital with what we're doing
1: and you're involved at all levels as you say but you do go in do you spend a lot of your time going into Premier League clubs and talking to players and talking about how they can express themselves how they can express themselves as adults yeah, in, in, yeah. in in some cases how difficult is it to earn the trust of modern Premier League footballers
2: I mean, it's footballers right across the board. So, you know, it's Football League footballers. It, it's the young academy players. I think when you're genuine, when you have an appreciation and understanding of what people are going through, uh, when you can tell the odd story or two as well that, sure. that makes them reckon, oh, actually, he understands. you can
1: see themselves in it. Yeah. Right.
2: You know, and without naming a player this week, I was sat down with a player for over two hours. And, you know, some people say, well, if you want to stay, you can stay, but you won't have long. We sat down for two hours and we're we're talking about impact. You know, first things first, I don't think people generally feel that players are impacted by some of the stuff that happens to them. Mm. So their first thought is not to ask, how are you? You know, are you okay? Are you handling this okay? And I think when you have that approach, straight away they'll go, "Oh, they're not worried about anything. They're worried about me. What you mean?
1: Because the the sense still exists that, if you're a professional footballer, of course everything's okay. Yeah, exactly. Because you're a professional footballer.
2: Yeah. Now, maybe I'm a little bit blessed on that score because mm. I've, I'm the father of a professional footballer. So actually, mm. does that mean that you know what approach to take? But for me, it's, that's just a, a human nature thing, first of all, mm. to ask someone, are you okay? You know, a big incident has happened, you know, and they want to talk about fining systems, banning, this, that. No, no, no. Let's talk about the individual first. Mm. Are you okay? Then you open up your topics of conversation from there. And like I say, I sat down for two hours, like real deep conversation with a player that wasn't ready to leave the room because actually you can appreciate and understand the kind of conversation that's been brought to the table.
1: So has mental health and focus on mental health become more and more part of your work since 2011 then?
2: Yeah. Listen, you're talking to someone that has suffered and I think still continues to suffer on that score as well. Right. Um. So again, that acknowledgement of what I've been through, I can relay that at times. Sometimes within myself, I don't even know if I'm controlling it or not. You know, I don't know. Good days, bad days, in different days, periods of time, they're very much in my thought process all the time. But I think I can see someone that's struggling, and I think I don't know. I I never knew if I could help people. And all of a sudden, I feel that sometimes, you know, I put some messages out and people are lying to the messages and they say, oh, great post, you know, social media post or whatever else. Then then I realize that maybe I'm not a good talker. But actually, when I write it down, my thoughts down on on, in black and white, there's more people here that acknowledge it than ignore it. And I think I don't think we appreciate the mental well-being of individuals enough. Um, because that aspect again, this game apparently is so. Everyone in the game is so wealthy mm. that they can buy their way out of the the, the mental well being aspect mm. When actually they're just as human as as the rest of us, and it will impact them in the same way. Or well, the thought that a lot of us have that money will solve all your problems. Yeah, well, exactly, and uh, it's it's that. And I'm going to use the term ignorance bit again. You know, mm. you either you're either ignorant to it or you can align to it. And I think far too many are ignorant to it because they feel that, you know, the more your wealth, the happier you will be, the richer you become, mm. and the fact that your problems stay somewhere down the road and they never approach and attack you. Mm. You know, and I've seen far too many incidents, incidents where unfortunately that, that's not the case. And I think anyone, you know, who has had those experiences will be happy and willing to talk up about them and tell them that it's not. So when you look at,
1: we have to say, in increasing amount of racist incidents in, in British football at, at, at the moment. Do you think we've become a little complacent about the existence of racism in English football particularly, especially as we see it, like the problems of other countries in Europe? Do you think we thought we'd cracked it? No. I'm not saying, do you think, do you
2: think we'd cracked it? No, no, no. no I'm, no, I'm no, saying yeah.
1: society generally. Do you think there are people out there who thought thought we cracked it and that didn't apply to us.
2: No, I think there's people that just thought it didn't exist. So it's not mm. even cracking. It, it's just that it didn't exist or we're not like the seventies and eighties when, you know, mm. we could see fans and, and that we could hear the charting, you know, it never went away. It just wasn't reported in the same way. And there was other things for, you know, people to focus their attention on, you know, the, and this is how I use as an example, do you remember that iconic image of John Barnes, 1988, backflicking that banana off a
1: football pitch? It's on the front of uh, Out of His Skin by Dave Hill, isn't it?
2: There you go. Yeah. Goodison Park. My educational sessions, originally, I always said, I'm so glad we're not back in that place. Mm. You know, a banana being thrown on a football pitch at a black player. Everyone knows the connotation behind that. John dealt with it in his own unique way and continued to flourish mm. in, the, in the game. This is where I think how far, or maybe not how far, we've come here. Thirty years later, 2018, uh, end of November. There's a banana again at the Emirates, um, thrown at Abayang after he scored. Mm. That's that's racism. That's yeah. racism in your face. Every report that came out about that incident was of a missile being thrown on a football pitch. Right. Was of. You know, I don't even think they called it a banana. It's just a missile. When the gentleman that threw it on the pitch was charged, uh, he wasn't charged around any kind of racial connotation. So actually, we've failed to call it out for what it was.
0: Hmm. So
2: how can we have progressed if in 1988, it's a racist incident, but in 2018, it's a missile, similar to a coin, similar to whatever gets thrown on pitches nowadays if we're not going to call racism for what it is, then we're trying to, again, sweep the issue under the carpet. Yeah. And as many people in the, the industry, the journalist industry say to me, "Ah, Troy, there's legal reasons. And I always say, well, it's funny that legal reasons always pop up for racism. Mm. But when someone runs on the pitch and lamps, Jack Grealish horrendous as what it is. We can call it for what it is. Mm. It it is what it is. And Mm. we all appreciate, and we all, you know, want to make sure we stamp that out. Yeah. So do we really want to stamp out racism if we're not going to call it and identify it as it is? And by the way, the people making these decisions, have they ever experienced or have they ever spoken to a black player to Mm. say, what did that banana mean to you? So, how you know, and I'm being critical of Kiki Out here, if you want to say, how Mm. much work have we done in 25, 26 years
0: Mm.
2: that says, you know, the acknowledgement of, of what that incident was is clear for everyone to see. So if football's hiding the fact, how can we then judge other people that don't see it?
1: I mean, it is happening more and more, though. That, that is at least, I would say, even recognised by the, the mainstream media with what happened with Sterling, what happened with uh, Mohamed Salah uh, at West Ham, some of the stuff that not just Wilfred Zaha, but other players get, get online. Yeah. I mean, how much of this do you think is people being emboldened by the anonymity of social media. And do you, think, do you think the environment post-referendum has affected it? Has emboldened people to come out with stuff that maybe they wouldn't have felt they could come out with before?
2: We, we have a problem in this country anyway, don't we? And that problem is that six-letter word, Brexit. And I think that has, quite rightly, like you've said, has empowered people to, to have ownership again. You know, this is our country. This mm. is, you know, and if you don't look sound... Act like someone who apparently comes from this country, um, then you are alienated and ostracised. Hmm. So, in that sense, that and coupled with the now the power of social media that enables prime ministers, that enables you know uh, people to people of high positions to spout derogatory terms, language, you know, homophobic language, racist language, sexist language, and have no accountability. Without nuance, without reference. Yeah then of course people are going to pick up on that.
0: Mm.
2: If it's all right for them, it's got to be great for us. Mm. You know, in my sessions, I, I, I pull up all these tweets that have these these, these racial stereotypes around it. And the room is disgusted that these people can exist. And ultimately, we don't know if they're in there. But everyone says, oh, well, actually, they're hiding behind social media. But are they in our stadiums? Do we know if these people are entering our stadiums? Do we know if maybe they are calling this out in stadiums? So we have a new threat. That social media is a new threat. It wasn't around in, in the 80s, the 90s, but it's a new threat. In a way, is it, is it kind of worse? Because
1: like say if, say if you're a player, for example, receiving that sort of thing, I mean, before, however bad it might have been, it's you and them. You come home, you close the door,
2: you're with your family and you can forget all about it. Whereas now, you
1: come in, you close the door, you turn on your phone and it's in your front room.
2: Well, Tammy Abraham said after getting racially abused uh, after missing a penalty in the European Super Cup yeah. final, said it didn't bother him. Yeah, it's not, I don't care, not really engaged with all that stuff. And quite rightly, we've seen him prosper prosper and grow every yes. week. But it bothered his mum. Mm. She found out. It's on, you know, it's on Sky Sports. Yeah. It, it, people are talking about it. So, and she asked the question. Why are people talking about you like
0: that? Mm.
2: Why are they against you because of the colour of your skin? You only missed a penalty. Is it Does it mean that you are the target of racial abuse? And for me, there's no shutting off from it. Because ultimately, if you say, I ignore it, someone close to you is going to be impacted by it. So it has this bigger feel. Troy Deeney shut off his comments on Instagram. Mm. But actually, people still see it. And it's a worrying kind of time now that these social media companies are not acting and, and for me will not act on the very nature of the, the what I call hate speech, hate crime. There's no sense of responsibility
1: not about all. it on
2: Facebook or Twitter. But yet, they there? put no. something out the other day where they're not going to, you know, as the election gets closer, we're going to this and we're going to that. Mm. So actually they can act. And I think everyone, we're not fooled anymore. Of course they can act mm. if they really want to. I suppose the other side of that though is Rahim Sterling, who's
1: Emerged more than more of uh, uh, than one of England's premier footballers, more than one of Europe's premier footballers. He's an important societal figure now because he's used social media on the other side to say, "Right, I'm not having this. Mm. I'm not being treated like this." I mean, could a figure like Rahim have even existed pre-social media in the way that he expresses himself publicly?
2: Probably not. But I think players are now realizing their own power. Mm. I think before that power has almost been taken away from the player, by press officers, by whatever, you know, no, you don't talk up about this. You, you you know, keep it quiet. We don't want to bring anything back. We don't want to alienate fan bases. We don't want challenges. But now all of a sudden social media can be used in a, in a way that, that expresses the player's opinions, thoughts and feelings as well. Yes, Raheem has used it amazingly well you know and, and and quite rightly has become a figure now listen i don't want to lump everything onto raheem sterling because mm. i don't think that's fair um but what i do feel is that players now have platforms where they can discuss their their thoughts and opinions and 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 you know we're trying to bring them closer to fans this thing about social media was actually bringing the play, players closer to fans now sometimes they just make comment and and you know are drawn away from the fan because mm. of how much abuse they do receive but the more we can have a Raheem Sterling talking up a Paul Pogba, you know, Danny's Danny Rose is not on Twitter, but every time I hear Danny speak, particularly on this subject, he's so powerful mm. because he's been hurt by it on more than one occasion. So yes, it's right that we talk about Raheem Sterling because he can talk more on social media. But a Danny Rose is just for me
0: mm.
2: is just as powerful in the way that he speaks and his is, is, is uncut, you know, Troy Deeney, you know, the more we can get our players influencing people because they have that influence, don't mm. they? Um, listen, I don't think we're ever going to eradicate it. Let's be serious. Mm. It's, it's in society and that. But we could do better in in monitoring it and measuring it and making sure that our, our, our product on the football field is not affected by incidents um, that we're seeing. And let's not forget this as well. Two things. England-Bulgaria should not have been completed as a football match.
0: Hmm.
2: Should not have been completed. Why? Because after the second step of the protocol was initiated, UEFA's own protocol that gives you free chances to racially abuse someone, by the way, they should have been pulled off in the second half. Not England's decision, the decision of the officials. Five days later, Tom Loizu at Haringey Borough pulls his team out of an FA Cup tie against Yeovil. Racial abuse, bottle throwing, spitting. You know, uh, uh, that game has been replayed, and Haringay have lost. I was at the replay, mm. the, the the replayed game, and Harringay lost. And Yeovil were a better side, no doubt. Should they have the opportunity to replay the game? There's no outcome yet on that decision. Mm. What if the decision is to throw Yeovil out of the FA Cup? I I don't know, so I'm I'm not quite sure we we've got it right at all at the moment. And there almost needs to be a look at football's own rules. Is
1: this the concern that with the Bulgaria England thing, so much of the discussion was um, should Sterling have led the players off? Should Southgate have led the players off? Should um, Harry Kane have led the players off? And we've seen that as well, haven't we? With the, I I know you're aware of it, the incident in the Ukrainian Classico in Shakhtar Dynamo, Kiev, where Tyson, very much the the, the captain of Shakhtar, very much like uh, Mario Balotelli, booted the ball into the stand. He's very upset. The Dinamo players actually dealt with it really well. They went and spoke to the away fans Brilliant. and said, you can't do this. They comforted him and uh, Denchinho, one of the other players, he was upset. But of course, at the end of it, Tyson got sent off by the referee and they upheld a one-match ban exactly. for him. So how are we in this situation where the players are expected to lead the response, or the coaching staff, if we're talking about Gareth Southgate, are ex- expected to lead the response rather than the authorities? Is this just an abdication of responsibility?
2: Sometimes it's best to go with the 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 protocol, the systems that are in place. Mm. But I think what we've seen over the past month is that the systems are not really there to protect the player, are they? You know, we've had incidents out in Holland. Now we've had the stand made, you yeah. know, by them. You know, not playing for the first minute of a football match again, know? led by again, the players, led by the players. Some people say, "Oh, that's not enough," but it's a start.
0: Mm.
2: It's a start of maybe the change that is needed. Like you say, led by the players that actually may see them put their kit on walk out and then walk off and don't come back mm. is it is it going to take that action that that extreme action for our, our footling authorities to actually stand up and take note it has to come from everybody as well so what happened in holland i think everybody got together if we're going to yeah. do this let's not have the responsibility on the manager and let's not have the responsibility on the on the captain just do it as a group of players. Mm. And I know the England players were asked, do you want to come off or not? And they said they want to, but hold on. A very clumsy statement was, well, it wasn't as many fans as in the first half, which is actually Mm. an acknowledgement that a racially racial abuse continued. Yeah. So does it matter if it's one, two, five Mm. rather than mass? If you can hear it, you do something about it. I think sooner rather than later, if you don't change the rule in the laws, the whatever it is, you're going to find that we may be seeing a, a, an empty football pitch as in terms of the the, the people that provide the entertainment mm. because enough's enough. Um, and I think the game should be worried about that. I think the game should be worried that if it doesn't take the right steps, that maybe the ownership will be, will be with the players and maybe they will decide collectively, let's do this now.
1: Now, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm, I'm going to have to tie this up much as I could Talk all day to you, to be honest. Um, When I see you talking about football, just when we're we're talking now before we're in the studio or um, when when I see you talking about football on Twitter, the thing that always comes across is you're still an enormous football fan. Now, you've been through it in so many different ways. You've been through it uh, as a player, as a coach, as a parent, working behind the scenes in the game now what do you feel when you sit down and, and watch a game? Do you have those same feelings about football that you did as a kid when you, you first watched Pelé?
2: <laughs> Listen, I love the game. I used the word love earlier. I, I, I There's few things that can occupy my mind than football. Yeah, your kids and, and, and that. And, hmm. But, uh, you know, I, although I see the horrible nature of the game, you know, from, from through my eyes, through the work that I do, I see the impact of the work that we do. And then, so tomorrow I go to Burnley. (sighs) What a journey that is, by the way, but (laughs) I'm going in anticipation in nervousness, but also in enjoyment in, in, in frustration, no doubt at certain periods of time, but also the fact that I've got someone on that football pitch that I, I love watching play. Mm. Absolutely love watching play. And, you know, all the critical part of it from the outside world can be what it, what it can. I love watching my son play football.
1: Is it a better feeling watching him play than it was you playing
2: yourself? And that's a tough question. What a throw one that is. Yeah, (laughs) it is actually. Yeah. I loved playing football. I did. Of course I did, but I didn't get past that level that then earned me, you know, made me sign on the dotted line and give me a professional deal. The, the glory of the pleasure of watching him play is, is any parent will tell you is unbelievable. You know, it's something that I wanted to achieve in couldn't something he has achieved in representing his country. You know, how could I forget the game against Montenegro, you know, Mm. the day that he scored, you know, how can I forget being at the Etihad last year and watching that volley, which I couldn't even track the ball, but watching that go in the back of the net.
1: I mean, if that was on a VHS tape, you would have worn it out by
2: now, right? <laughs> you, you can't get worn out on a, on a iPad or anything like it's that. Perfect. No. Yeah. Um, just, you know, there's enough memories for me. There's enough pleasure to keep me in love with the game. You know, there's enough enjoyment. There's enough seeing young players now, players that I've actually educated. I know I'm not educating them from a coaching perspective, mm. Now making their debuts, now flourishing, you know, now mm. in the, you know, from your Aaron Connollys at Brighton to your Hudson O'Doyews at, at, mm. at Chelsea. They've been in a classroom with me, maybe a little bit bored, but they've <laughs> been in there. Do you know what I mean? And I think now seeing, I'm now going to see a new wave of young people impact on the highest level, the middle level, right through the levels. And I've had something to do with it. Now, the way I say, well, they say you didn't cut. Co- yeah, no, I've had. I've, I'm helping their thought process. Yeah, you know.
1: Well, the the, the actual on pitch of it,
2: bit of it's just like what, that's the easy twenty percent of it. That's the easy bit. Yeah, because what do they really want to do? They want to get on the pitch. I think you mentioned it earlier, Andy. That safe space, mm. that space where they can be themselves, where they mm. can excel. With that's the easy bit. There's a mental side, the other side, impacted on maybe incidents or impacted on a little bit by themselves just through their mannerisms. And what the game kind of tells you to be like. Mm. Because remember, you're regimented in this game. Mm. You are told to be somewhere at certain times nearly every single day. Yeah. And if you break that, you know, your pocket will be a little bit looser. So Mm. what we try to do is provide them a little bit of space that might not impact them now, but maybe will in the future. And, you know, first and foremost, the player is a person and it's to appreciate the fact that they are a person. And, and align that to them being a player, and so that we've got better all-rounded individuals every time we look at a football player on the football pitch.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear you still love it as much as you always did. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolute and pleasure. I can only wish you all the luck in the world for <laughs> Burnley away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This was a
0: Stakhanov production. only from rustolium